Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. This week's podcast is brought to you by one company that is making beautiful, stylish, innovative products. The company is called Groa. It's spelled G-R-O-H-E. And they are the maker of innovative faucet and showering products. They're renowned worldwide for their beautiful German engineering, their cosmopolitan style, their intuitive performance and sustainability. Groa products feel like they were designed just for you. Turn up your shower experience with the Groa Smart Control. I recently turned up mine and it has changed my showering experience. It's the latest in shower customization technology. Smart Control lets you manage up to three bath and shower functions with one seamless control. You can declutter your shower wall and elevate your shower experience at the same time. Fully personalize your shower with this intuitive preset temperatures, volume control of Smart Control. It's really, really fantastic and amazing. You've got to check it out. Go to groa.us slash hive. That's G-R-O-H-E dot U-S slash hive and check out uh, the Groa Smart Control. It's amazing. So onto our show this week, we have the last in the installment of the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit. My guests that are taking over the podcast are none other than the famous lawyer Michael Avenatti, who represented Stormy Daniels. A few weeks ago, uh, Steve Bannon was being interviewed and someone asked him, who do you think is the one person on the Democratic side who could actually stand up to Donald Trump that could actually possibly beat him? And, and you know, that Donald Trump wouldn't be able to kind of bat around the way he does with most politicians. And the response was Michael Avenatti. And it's true. I mean, Trump really is, it gets under his skin. Uh, Avenatti is being interviewed this week by Emily Jane Fox, who has been on the show many, many times. It's a great interview. It's funny. It's enlightening. Uh, there's some really great quotes that Avenatti offers, of course, saying that he, unlike Brett Kavanaugh, he didn't uh, help old ladies across the street for the past X number of years. He's actually got some skeletons in his closet. So it'll be interesting to see if he runs in 2020 and if he can beat him. So stay tuned. This man needs no introduction because he is in your living rooms on your televisions most evening and again at your breakfast table the following morning, but I will introduce him anyway. This is Michael Avenatti, who has become somewhat of a cult icon on the left, a thorn in the president's side, and someone who has been in the thick of some of the most uh, controversial and important events in the last six months. So thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. So. You have been at a state fair in Iowa. You have been at fundraisers in New Hampshire. You have been on every cable news program uh, touting your clients and yourself. So there's one question that I want to ask you today, and it kind of picks up on the last panel. Are you ready to announce your bid for 2020? Uh, I am not announcing yet, but I'm certainly seriously considering uh, running because I think there's going to be an enormous amount at risk in 2020 for our nation. I firmly believe that the future of the republic will hinge on the outcome of that race. And in the event that Donald Trump is the nominee on the right, it's going to take somebody very unique to beat him. I don't think I'm the only person that can do it, but I do think it's a short list. And I think the Democrats are fooling themselves if they think they can nominate someone very similar to the other 16 or 17 politicians that he beat handily in 2000. 16. I think regardless of who the nominee is, it's going to be a very, very difficult race if the economy stays where it is. 
I, I hear even now a lot of people underestimate Donald Trump and his ability to win in 2020, and that is a grave error and a, a critical mistake in my view. Well, who are some of those people on the short list? Well, I'm not gonna name names, but what I will say is is that there's a lot of people that have been uh, bantered about that are likely to run. You, you know, one of the things, one of the problems is is that when somebody asks me, are you gonna run for president? I answer it honestly, which is I'm seriously considering it. I have not made up my mind, but I am considering it. You ask any number of the other potential candidates on the Democratic side, and they'll give you the mantra of, you know, I'm working towards the midterms and I'm focused on the midterms. Meanwhile, they have 60 people in Iowa. I don't know what those 60 people are doing. Maybe they're building the Field of Dreams too in, in Iowa or something, I don't, I don't know. But it's pretty clear that they're gonna run for office. So, you know, I think part, this is part of the problem. People don't engage in just honest, straight speak when answering questions from people. So, you know, look, I think, it's, I think there's a short list of individuals that can beat uh, Donald Trump and a number of the people that are considering running, I think they would make an exceptional president. In fact, a number of them would probably make a better president of the United States than I would. But you know what? They don't have any shot of beating Donald Trump. They have no shot of beating Donald Trump. And in my view, if you don't have a legitimate shot, you don't belong in the race. Do you have any people in Iowa or anywhere who are working? I, 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 have, I have a number of people that are assisting me and, uh, as I travel the country and I'm raising money for Democrats and I'm, I'm seriously considering this. Are you talking about raising money for yourself? We, we launched a PAC a few days ago. It's called the Fight PAC, and it's designed to raise money for other Democrats in the 2018 uh, cycle, as well as uh, beyond in 2020. Obviously, if I announce, that will require a separate committee, an exploratory committee, or a presidential committee. When would you be making this decision? I'll make a decision by the first of the year. Uh, and I don't know if the announcement will follow the first of the year or it could occur prior to the first of the year, but I'll make an announcement pretty quickly. I think a number of people are gonna have to decide in short order because there's actually limited amount of staff available for Iowa. And so if you have 10 or 15 or 20 people that are gonna run, it's just going to be a natural limiting uh, factor. Do you actually want the job of being president? <laughs> I understand that you, I've heard you say over and over again in interviews quite effectively that you think you are the man p potentially best suited to win. Are you the man best suited to serve in the role and do you actually want to serve in that role? Let's assume that 15 individuals run on the Democratic side and I mean we could go through a list of names of who those likely are. Again, I think a number of them would make a better president than I would, but it doesn't matter if you can't beat Donald Trump. In 2016, the Democrats nominated the person that was most qualified in the history of the United States to seek the office of the presidency, whether you agreed with their positions or not, there was never anyone more qualified than Hillary Rodham Clinton. But she could not beat Donald Trump. We could talk about the popular vote, we could certainly talk about Russian interference, all of those are issues, don't get me wrong but she could not beat Donald Trump. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much policy experience you have, it doesn't matter how much political experience you have, if you can't beat Donald Trump in 2020, then you should not be the nominee. You know, as it relates to whether I want the job, it, you know, I flew into New York on Saturday, I had a fundraiser in Cincinnati on Friday, which was great, and I was on the phone with my mother early in the morning on uh, Saturday, she still lives in St. Louis, she's 83 years old, and I was on the phone with her, and. Uh, I'll just be very candid. She asked me, she said, you know, what the hell are you doing? 
She said, why, why are you even considering doing this? Um, you've worked really hard, you've, you have a successful life, you've got a good life, and it'd be a lot easier if you just went on and lived that life. You don't need the headaches, you don't need to go do this. I don't know why you would uh, even consider it. So what did you say back to her? Well, what, what I said back to her was that, you know, sometimes it's bigger than yourself. And sometimes there's a necessity to step up and serve in a particular situation. And again, if somebody came out of the woodwork that I felt strongly could beat Donald Trump, then I would pour all of my energy uh, over the next two years behind supporting that individual. But I have yet to see that person, and I'm pretty familiar with each of the people that are likely to step up. Now, let me say this. If the economy softens, it's a whole different ballgame. If the economy softens, his approval rating will go into the high teens, in my view, and whoever the Democratic nominee is will likely be the next president of the United States. But if the economy does not soften, I don't care who the nominee is, whether it's me or someone else, this is going to be an incredibly difficult race for the Democrats in order to capture the White House. So why do you think that you would be able to beat President Trump when all of these people who, in your estimation, are very qualified to actually hold the job, wouldn't actually be able to win against him. Because I think we have ushered in a new normal in American society, and we could have a debate as to whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I personally think it's a bad thing, but I don't think we're gonna go backwards. And what I mean by this is, is that I think from here on out, the individual that's gonna hold the White House is gonna to have to be someone that has a considerable presence about them, has a degree of charisma, there's an entertainment factor, they know how to operate within the media structure and excite people. I think, I think that's going to be required on a go forward basis. But and there's also, a difference between being someone who is charismatic and understands the media and understands entertaining people and someone who is stooping to President Trump's level, which is something that I don't think most people in this audience or many people in this country want to see us devolve further into. That's not the direction that many people want us to go further down. Uh, you know, there, there are people who have said, my esteemed colleague Nick Bilton pointed this out to me, um, someone tweeted yesterday that Michael Avenatti is the blue version of the red Make America Great Again hat. And there is a fight fire with fire that you, you have talked about openly and over and over again. Is that really the direction that you think we should go down again in 2020? Is that what you want to see for your children and for our country? Well, there's a difference between how you run a campaign and how you govern, or at least there should be. The, pro the, problem, the problem with Donald Trump is that he governs basically in the same way or worse than he campaigned. He, believes that he's still in a campaign day in and day out as, he re as it relates to governing this nation. And that is a significant problem. Now, I don't know about each of you, but when I went to bed in November of 2016 on election night, I was dejected, I was disappointed, I was a lot of things. But I thought to myself, hopefully Donald Trump, now that he has won, will realize the magnitude of the office and he will push aside the way that he ran the campaign and seek to unite the country, seek to govern in a more unifying way, seek to serve as the president of the entire United States. I had hoped that the office would change the man. We now know that did not happen, that the man is seeking to permanently change the office of the presidency. So I don't think that you have to govern the same way that you campaign. And I think one of the things that's going to be necessary in 2020 is that it's gonna take a certain personality to go head to head and beat Donald Trump, but you're not gonna want that same personality governing the nation 
you know, a after the gun goes off, after the end of the campaign. I think we can agree on you're, that. You're going to want that person to be able to rotate and really seek to unify the country to try to put this dumpster fire of a presidency behind us to get back to where we were. Part of the reason why you went to bed on the night of the election feeling so dejected and upset and hoping that he would pivot was because of the level of discourse. So do you really think that you want the rest of America to have that feeling on November, whatever it is, 2020, where they have seen two men go up, you know, head to head against each other, fighting like street fighters, and, and using that kind of language that the president used throughout the campaign. Is that how you want people to feel on that evening in, in November of 2020? Well, I, I think we're out of options, frankly. And, and I think that if Donald Trump is reelected in 2020, it's going to usher in profound change in the United States. The Supreme Court is going to go seven to two. Um, I'm a student of the court. I'm a student of the law. That will, in turn, result in changes in the United States and our society that we have never seen before. And they're not going to be limited in time. Those changes will take place for 30, 40, 50 years, for the balance of my lifetime, for the next 30, 40, 50 years of my children's lifetime. And we are really speaking about, in my view, a fight for the future of the republic. I think that this nation um, will come crumbling down at some point in the years or the decades that follow. I, I firmly believe, I'm not prone to over-exaggeration, I firmly believe that's what it's, is at stake at 2020. And if that means that we gotta crawl down in the gutter and trade shots with this guy in order to ensure that he's not reelected, well then that's what we gotta do. And then after that campaign, we need to uh, begin a healing process. But, you know, a lot of people talk about they don't like the level of discourse. I don't like the level of discourse. But on the flip side, it's a lot like when people talk about the fact that they don't like negative ads in, in electoral politics, that they don't like candidates that go negative. Well, there's a reason why candidates have continued to use negative ads, and it's not because they don't work. It's because they absolutely work. And you're not going to beat Donald Trump through a message of universal love and love thy neighbor and you know, kinder and gentler, you're not gonna do that. This guy will eat you alive. This guy will absolutely run roughshod over someone that preaches that day in and day out on the campaign trail. It'll, it'll be an absolute blowout. That is not the way to deal with this guy. And if you need evidence of that, you can look at the other 15, 16, 17 politicians. Speaking of president eating people alive, can I read you a tweet that the president sent about you? I hate to bring up his Twitter feed, but it, it, it leads me somewhere. So uh, last month he tweeted, I'm, I'm going to cut it down because it was long. Uh, he said, Avenatti is a third-rate lawyer who is good at making false accusations. He's just looking for attention and doesn't want to look at his past record and relationships. So I understand that that's rich coming from that source, but <clears throat> why don't we just get ahead of any potential stories, do a smart communication strategy, and fight the story off before it even happens. So what are the skeletoniest skeletons in your closet <laughs> that you think would come out? You know, I, I, here's what I say. Um, here's, what, here's what I'm gonna say. I used to be in politics from 90 to 97. I worked on over 150 campaigns in 42 states, and I was a, a political student. Uh, I enjoyed campaigns. If there was a big race in the 90s, I was involved in it. And at that point in time, I thought that perhaps I would have a future in politics, and it was something that I was planning for. You did not buy 
foreign cars for all of your 20s, right? That's correct. We talked about this. So I was so focused on potentially running for office. At that point, it was a big issue as to whether you were buying a foreign car because it would mean that you were basically buying a car that would send manufacturing jobs outside of the United States. So I didn't buy a foreign car at that time because I had worked on opposition research on all these other candidates, and so I knew a lot about what to do and not do. Well, in 1997, I got out of politics, and I went on and focused on a legal career. And I boxed up that part of my life, and I put it behind me. And I never thought I would return to politics. I never thought in a million years I'd be sitting here on a stage with Emily Jane Fox talking about a potential run for the presidency. So what happened? Well, and, and so there's a lot of things that I did in the time period between 1997 and now that I otherwise would not have done, right, if I was going to run for the presidency of the United States. I, I lived a life. life. I, lived life. A color, I lived a colorful life. Give me one example. Well, there, I mean, there's, re there's really nothing that, I mean, compared to the present occupant of the uh, White House. Sure, I'm a, I'm so a saint. everything will seem innocuous. I'm, I'm a, I'm a saint. You know, well, look, thing. let me just say this. If you asked me on Fox News whether I blacked out during high school uh, t from time to time, the answer would be yes. Great. Okay. I, I drink, I, I drank excessively. Uh, you know, I, unlike Brett Kavanaugh, was not focused on walking little old ladies across the street in the after school program Monday through, you know, Monday through Friday and I didn't bring a shiny red apple to every teacher that I had in the high school. So I, I led a life. There's a lot of things I did that I would not have done. There's a lot of things that I should have done that I didn't do, right? But look, I am who I am. I'm a real guy. I'm 47 years old. I've lived a life and I'm not concerned about large skeletons coming out of the closet. I think everybody's got a little, you know, some baby skeletons rolling around on the, on the floorboard, but I, I'm, not overly, I'm not overly concerned about that. Um, I'm, I'm not. Um, but Are you concerned about being uh, a single president? Don't we have that now? <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. Um, <clears throat> look, I, I'm not concerned about being a single president because I am singularly focused on solving this dumpster fire of a presidency, truly. And I think that We've come a long way as a nation as it relates to our um, views on marriage and divorce and partnerships and the like, thankfully. Okay. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, and, um, you know, I think, look, anyone that's going to get hung up on the fact that I would be a single president is likely not to vote for me under any circumstance. Plus, I'm confident of the fact that many, many people in the United States at this point have seen the movie American President at least 20 times on the Lifetime channel or on cable mm -hmm. over the last, you know, 10 years. Spoken like a, a true politician. You brought up uh, Kavanaugh, so I'm going to bring up Kavanaugh. Uh, you have been the topic of great debate over the past week. You had a client come forward, uh, your client, careful. Uh, your client, Julie Swetnick, uh, came forward with some very serious accusations against uh, Justice Kavanaugh. And you have caught a lot of heat in the last couple of weeks, both from the right and from the left. And many people have blamed you for pushing Justice Kavanaugh's nomination through. My question for you is not whether or not you're to blame for that or... Um, uh, you're at fault or how serious your client's accusations were. What I'm curious about is you know, you're, you're smart, you're savvy, uh, you're very plugged into how people talk about you and think about you. You know that you're a lightning rod, both for people on the establishment on the right, the establishment on the left. And I'm wondering if you ever thought before you took on this client, 
knowing how people feel about you, that your client wouldn't be best served by somebody who people had such strong opinions about. That you could have said to your client, look, I believe you, I believe in your case, let me introduce you to another lawyer who people don't have such strong opinions about, and I can privately advise you, but this lawyer may be better able to serve you publicly. So let me, let me say a few things. First of all, um, I'm not going to accept being a scapegoat for what happened in connection with the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation because nothing that I did or my client did changed that at all. Not a single vote whatsoever. Um, this political hit job that has been trotted out, which started on the right and now has been adopted by certain members of the left, is a direct consequence of the fact that they see me as a threat. They see me as a threat to the president in the event that I run, and the Democratic establishment believes that I'm a threat. There's no question about that. But do you I think mean, that that, no, you no, I'm gonna you answer, that, I'm gonna answer yeah. your question. So, you know, Steve Bannon went on, and I'm not a big proponent of a lot of things that Steve Bannon says, but I'll say this. From a strategy standpoint, you can't argue that the, the guy has some intelligence relating to how to run an election. He went on Bill Maher 10 days ago and talked about what he thought as who the most likely individual to give Donald Trump a run for his money in 2020 was. Shortly thereafter, and that's not the first time he said it, shortly thereafter you have all of these Republicans on the committee that basically parrot the same story about the porn lawyer. By the way, I've been practicing for 18 years. I've got over a billion dollars in verdicts and settlements. I've represented one very famous porn star in my entire career, Stormy Daniels, okay? And now the right has picked up on it. But to your question, did I think that she would be better served, Julie Swetnick, by having another lawyer? No, I didn't, and I still don't. The fact of the matter is, is that I stand behind those allegations. She was a woman that needed representation. She needed somebody to stand behind her and go to bat for her. And I was proud to do it then, and I would do it again now, because what she said is 100% accurate, and it's credible, and had an FBI investigation been done, it would have been proven credible, and the six corroborating witnesses that we had, five of which did not want to come forward publicly, would have been, they would have given statements to the FBI, and she would have been proven to be a credible witness. The FBI did not not meet with my client because the White House thought that her allegations had no basis. If the White House believed their allegations had no basis, they would have had her meet with the FBI, give a false statement to the FBI, charged her with making a false statement to the FBI, which by the way is likely what's gonna happen with Don Jr. within the next month, but we can talk about that later, and, and then taken me out in the process and proven her to be a liar. There was a reason why they limited that investigation, and it's not because all these women were lying. I'm not gonna let you leave that Don Jr. thing hanging. I'm gonna interrupt my Kavanaugh line of questioning for a second. How do you know that? Well, I'm not gonna get into how I know it, but I'll say this. If anybody looks at my prediction record over the last six months, it's, it's been pretty good. It's, it's better than your average, um, you know, 900 number astrology call. Let's just put it that okay, way. So but, everyone place but, your bets in Vegas. But, but, but look, I mean, my prediction record's been pretty good and I predict it's only a matter of weeks before um, Donald Trump Jr. is indicted by a federal grand jury. But you want to fight him in an, in an MMA Well, match, right? that was, you know, it was somewhat in jest, but I think we could raise a lot of money for charity. I think it'd be great. And it's, that's something. Um, <laughs> knowing what you know now, though, 
about the reaction to you and to your client, would you still make the decision to represent her? Or would you point her to another very qualified counsel? I, I, I would, because I think the reaction would have been the same regardless of the attorney that was involved, frankly, because of the, the level of the, uh, of the allegations and the accusations. And, you know, were the accusations and allegations, uh, were they salacious? Yes. Were they, uh, were they bombshell-like? Absolutely. She's telling the truth. You, you need only look at the New Yorker piece and, and Ms. Razor. You can look at the 1998 article in the Washington Post where a lot of these uh, headmasters at these schools were warning of this very conduct. There's a lot of corroborating evidence, but we never got an opportunity to present that evidence to the FBI because they didn't want the truth to be known. So you, you brought up the New Yorker piece and, and other pieces in the press. Why? Didn't you choose to go the route of the other two women who were on the record about their stories or, or came forward with their identities and go through a media source to do this? The other two women had both the Washington Post and the New Yorker talked to tens and tens and tens of, of corroborating witnesses to come up with a story. I'm curious why you didn't go that route and what your vetting process was of her story. Well, our vetting process was extensive before we agreed to represent her. What does that mean? Her. Well, I mean, there's a number of things that we do. I mean, we, we speak with the client repeatedly. Look, Did she take of, a polygraph of, test for you? Of, no, and, and we want to ask a client to take a polygraph test. But over the last six months, my office has received inquiries for you know, over 3,000 potential cases. And we take a very small number of cases. We fully vetted her. I was aware of the other lawsuits. I was aware of the other um, issues surrounding her, uh, some of which have been reported that are completely false. And we fully vetted the client before we agreed to represent her. I would not have gone public with my representation of her, would have never agreed to the representation if we didn't find her to be credible. So why did we not go through the media? Because as much as I like the media and as good a job as I think the media does, the media is not the judge and jury relating to whether somebody's telling the truth or not. All because the Washington Post or the New Yorker or the New York Times happens to print an article about somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate. It doesn't mean that it's accurate, but it does add a layer of credibility to a story that a newspaper would put its own reputation and its own legal liability on the line when you have highly seasoned reporters who are talking to many, many people, it does lend a, a level of credibility that perhaps you don't have when you are just coming forward with the client. I, I would agree with that, but I'll also make two other points. There was an issue of timing because of how long it would take for a story like that to be fully vetted and before you could get a news organization comfortable and it would have to go through standards and legal. I mean, that's not a story you, you know better than I do. That's not a story you put together in two or three days or four days or five days. I mean, that is a multi-week story. So there was the issue of, um, of timing associated with it. And there was also the issue as to whether my client wanted to become public and wanted to come out publicly. And that, there was a lot of back and forth associated with that as it relates to her safety and otherwise. You know, a lot of people don't realize because they don't have, um, they don't really have insight. These women that come out publicly in a situation like the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process, they change their lives forever. I mean, the news cycles move on, but their lives are literally changed forever. And depending on what happens, they literally risk their lives and their physical safety and that of their families. And they don't do it for a big buck or to make a buck. They just don't because there's no, trust me, there's no money in that for these women. They do it out of civic duty and because they believe in right and wrong. That's why they do it. And instead of being shamed 
by people like uh, Lindsey Graham and others for coming forward and mocked by people and told that they're lying and they're not credible when at the same time those same individuals are preventing an investigation into it, it's an outrage. We haven't learned anything since 1991 and Clarence Thomas. In fact, I would argue that in some ways, unfortunately, we've gone backwards. That's not how you treat women that issue or that make sworn statements under oath. You don't call them a liar. You don't say they're not credible at the same time that you prevent any reasonable investigation into their allegations. If any Fortune 500 company behaved that way in America, they would get their ticket stamped in a court of law for not adequately investigating a woman's claims of sexual assault, and rightfully so. And yet, we allow the Senate Judiciary Committee and the White House to quash an FBI investigation in the interest of politics, so we allow a man to be put on the Supreme Court for life without a proper investigation. I think it's an outrage, and I think it's a disgrace to every woman who's ever come forward in connection with a sexual assault allegation, and it sends the wrong message to our sisters, our mothers, and our daughters as to what will happen if you have the courage to come forward. I'll add the wrong message to our men as well. I'll ask you one last question. The, the last question I have for you, and I wish I could continue on longer. So what do you do to find her justice now? I don't know what the statute of limitations are for you to press charges. Do the witnesses come forward and speak their truth? How does she find justice in this situation uh, in, in today's day and age? As you can imagine, the last two weeks have been a whirlwind for her and very, very difficult um, on many, many fronts. And she's determining what options she wants to take. There's a number of options that she could take. She could file something civilly. She could bring uh, criminal charges potentially in the state of Maryland. Do you expect that to happen? She, I mean, it could, it could happen. I mean, she's going to have to make a decision as to whether she wants to stay in the limelight and, and the impact that that might have on her life. She might wait to see what happens in the midterms to see if the House will actually uh, conduct an investigation into what happened. I mean, I think it was just earlier today, the director of the FBI was asked about how the investigation was limited, and it has come out that it was not the Senate Judiciary Committee or anyone in the Senate that limited the investigation. It was the White House that limited the FBI investigation. So Donald Trump basically decided what allegations deserved attention or investigation or not. You know, I, I'm kind of old school. I thought the FBI was designed in the United States to determine whether allegations were credible. Little did I know that we should leave that to Donald Trump and his White House counsel. Do you have a bright and cheery note to end this on after that? <laughs> well, here, here is what I'll say. Um, you know, they used to, in the 80s, they used to call John Gotti the Teflon Don, and they said that he was untouchable right up until the moment that he wasn't, and he ended up dying in a federal penitentiary. So I'm still holding out hope, and I still believe in the rule of justice. Well, on that note, we will end this. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks to my guest this week, Michael Avenatti and Emily Jane Fox. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you find your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a beautiful, glowing review while you're there. Next week, we will be back to our regular scheduled programming where I will be interviewing some fascinating guests. Thanks, of course, to the folks at Cadence 13 for all their production work, to my editors at Manly Fair, and, of course, to our sponsor, Groa. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.